And we're live. Welcome, everyone, to an episode of Not Another Military History Podcast. Uh, my name is Jacob, and with me today again is Liam. How goes it, Liam? Goes well. Great to be back, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you ready to uh, to learn mo- some more about how some Marines get fucked over on Guadalcanal? Uh, the ineptitude of our armed forces uh, in World War II always fascinates me. <laughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. Looking for us, so there's just enough ineptitude of the Japanese side, too. There, there's plenty of just incompetence all around in this battle. So we'll go ahead and talk about that. So uh, in case you haven't listened to the very first episode, this is part two of your series on the Guadalcanal campaign of World War II. So if you haven't listened to the first part yet, go ahead and take a look at it. It is up on various different uh, platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc., uh, also, we have a Patreon as well, so if you donate only $3 a month, you can go ahead and get early access to episodes as well as bonus episodes that we up- upload weekly. So if you want to go ahead and get more content, uh, feel free to go ahead and uh, have the Patreon join the Akkad Squad. So that's the name that came up for for the patrons because the uh, very first episode was on the Cod Wars. So mm, There you go. Yeah. But so uh, last time we left out on Guadalcanal, so the the, uh, the Navy, the U.S. Navy had just been pretty much utterly uh, humiliated and defeated the Battle of Savo Island, leaving the Marines completely isolated and alone on the island of Guadalcanal. No support, uh, no naval support or anything whatsoever. So where we're going to go ahead and go from there is so... So only the thing was, so the Marines are, of course, after the defeat at Sav Island, are completely, you know, alone entirely. And only a fraction of the supplies and none of their heavy equipment had made it ashore to make things worse. And uh, absent any naval air support, Vandegrift, who, of course, was a general in charge of the 1st Marine Division, ordered the Marines to finish the airfield and establish a defensive perimeter around it. So... Uh, moreover as well the departure of the navy left 6,000 marines stranded on Tulagi and Gavutu Tenambogo while only 10,000 marines were left to garrison Guadalcanal itself so you remember you had that kind of the other detachment of guys went and attacked those two islands and now they're completely off by themselves as well I mean they're not going to try to swim across so uh, the marines set up defensive lines along the beaches of Alligator Creek and waited for the Japanese to launch a major, major attack so now, meanwhile, of course, the Marines are going to do what Marines do, and they immediately found a uh, stash of Japanese sake. Uh, so one of the sources <laughs> I, I I read about this, it was a Robert Leckie's helmet from my pillow, and he talked about just what he and his buddies did when they found the sake. So uh, so Robert Leckie wrote that even after most of the officers confiscated it, uh, he, or uh, officers confiscated most of it, he and his friends stashed over in the sand under the surf and continued to binge drink it, pretty much. Uh, after one drinking binge, Robert Leckie wrote, quote, I woke to the tiny twanging of hordes of invisible insects winging over my chest. I realized there were bullets when I heard the firing to my rear. I went back to sleep, sadly convinced the Japanese had got behind us. Such the power of sake. <laughs> so, like, that that's going to be the most military thing I think I've ever read. Just, like, wake yeah. up to the sound of, like, you know, whizzing bullets. You're just like, eh, fuck it. I'm going back to sleep. Like, fuck it's this not shit. Even, it's not <laughs> even the most military thing. That's the most marine thing I've ever heard. That you've Pretty found... much. You found yeah, enemy just... liquor and have decided to hide some of it from your commanding officers so you and your buddy can get drunk. And then having awoken from said drunken blackout, you awaken in the middle of a firefight and just go, mm, they don't need me. <laughs> That'll be fine without me. I got, I got a fucking nurse's incoming hangover I'm going to have. So um, there's more weird stuff to come. So one of the weirder episodes of the campaign, so there was... A herd of 200 to 300 cattle that were roaming around the Marines' perimeter this time. The Japanese are brought these cattle over to serve as kind of like, you know, a, a living kind of food storage. And then, um, so, at one point, though, a Japanese bomb actually started, uh, startled the cattle and started to stampede. And the cattle crashed, crashed right through the command post of the 1st Marine Division where Vandegrift was staying. Oh, wow. So, so far, the cows have done more damage than the Japanese have. Yes, yes. <laughs> the the cows... The cows launched a more a more competent attack, a more competent uh, assassination strike against Vandegrift than the Japanese ever would. So, I, <laughs> I also man, have to I, think, I, I you know, the, the like. I, I heard about the emu war, but I never thought that there would be a cow war as well. Yes, this was the uh, this the emus were, were giving. Uh, there was clearly they were on the Axis side uh, during in the, in the prelude to the war and during the war as well. You've got the emus trying to defeat the Australians, you've got the cows trying to defeat the Marines. So. But uh, now I also have to think to myself, I'm just like, man, like, <coughs> excuse me, 
you think about these like generals and everything like Vader group just has to be thinking like man I could be in like fucking London right now like helping fucking prepare for the invasion of Europe you know could be like you know they're like generals right now like you know they're like in Britain and they're like you know like within like you know a hair's breadth of like Buckingham Palace and then fucking you got guys like Vanagriff they're just like they're you know, like on these like sweaty jungles that are like getting their command posts overrun by cows. You know, like we need someone like, to go to the middle of the jungle and just kind of lead these marines somewhere. Hey, hey, Vandergraaf, you want to go to Guadalcanal? <laughs> so fuck no! What the fuck's Guadalcanal? Like, <laughs> I, I almost guarantee you that was probably his his first reaction. As was the first reaction of a lot of uh, marines. But uh, so. Now, as this is going on, daily Japanese air raids began, and which would pretty much go on throughout the entirety of the campaign. And uh, even submarines would start to surface, you know, at night and start to lob shells in the Marines' perimeter. So, which, like, you know, the deck guns of a submarine aren't going to do the airfield any sort of actual real damage. They're just doing that just to be a dick, which, like, you know, respect. And yeah, then, just uh, an annoyance <laughs> attack. Pretty much. And then, uh, but as, as this is going on, though, supplies are starting to dwindle. Uh, there's not much fighting right now, but just, you know, the supplies are starting to run low. The Marines only surv- are only surviving on rice at this point, along with their rations, once the rations run out. So there's actually stories as well of Marines. Like, there's a Marine who once complained about there being a worm in his food. And the Regible Doctor basically told him, like, hey, just be thankful you have meat, you know? <laughs> like, at least you're not just, like, suck with the rice. You've actually got worms as well, so. And then, um, so this went on for a couple weeks after Savo Island. Finally, on August 20th, the first American aircraft arrived on the newly named Henderson Field, allowing the Marines to be finally resupplied once more. So, now, uh, now this is going to lead into the Battle of the Teneru, as well, also known as the Battle of Alligator Creek. So less than 12 hours from the arrival of the first American aviators uh, was, of course, the Battle of the Teneru. So... The day after the initial landings on August 6th, the Japanese Army and Navy discussed the landings at Imperial General Headquarters and came to the conclusion that the American division was merely a, a quote, reconnaissance in force, vastly underestimating the scale of American ground troops, ground troops there. So, now this is due to a couple of different reasons. So, this is uh, partially because the Imperial Japanese Navy over-exaggerated the American carrier losses at Midway and concealed their own losses from the Army, um, you know, like that, their own losses during the battle. So the Japanese lost four aircraft carriers, and they kind of just, you know, like brushed a lot of that under the rug um, in regards to communicating with the army. Now, I mean, like every military is going to have inter-service rivalry, but with the Japanese, it was really bad. Like the the Imperial Japanese Navy and like Imperial Japanese Army, they fucking hated each other. Like they would like openly like sabotage each other's plans, and they just wouldn't talk to each other at really crucial moments several campaigns so it just it was it's pretty bad we'll see more of that as the campaign goes on so so two quick questions yeah uh one you mentioned that the japanese underest underestimated how many carriers they had destroyed at midway was that something where they thought after they hit the yorktown the first time and then followed with the retaliatory strike they thought the yorktown was a different aircraft carrier when they came back for it well, well, so what happened was is that they kind of, um, so they basically exaggerated the American carrier losses. Yeah. So they kind of, you know, thought like, oh. well, and it's kind of like they knew exactly how many carriers they lost, but they kind of wanted to like, you know, show up to the army, you know? And so we were it like, oh yeah, propaganda. you know, like yeah. Americans lost a bunch of carriers and, you know, we didn't lose that many. And it was, it's not that big of a deal, you know? So it's, it's kind of just, you know, saving face kind of in front of the army really. Yeah. Okay. And two. Uh, this rivalry between the army and the navy could this be any chance be resource driven? Like, if one is doing better than the other, other they're going to get the more uh, important resources that they need because, like, Japan is an island nation, and the only oh certainly are, it was yeah they're attacking and doing all this invading just so they can get more resources. So this is like a, a quite literally a college style or college esque competition between two frats basically yeah to get the unlimited beer packs. <laughs> yeah no that, that's a good analogy and it, it definitely was resource driven like you can just see the army and the navy had very different priorities the army really wanted to stick it out in china for the most part like china was their main priority kind of china of course being the ancestral enemy of japan 
and the army had been engaged in China since, I mean, 1937 was when the um, was when they invaded Manchuria. So the army wanted uh, mainly the the Japanese to go after China, but the navy wanted to focus more on the islands of the Pacific. And then so, but of course, like you said, Japan is not a very resource you know rich nation. It's having to go invade places like the Dutch East Indies, specifically for the oil and for the rubber and everything. So. You know, they're not able to just, you know, dole out all these resources to, you know, any, you know, which side. So a lot of times, you know, they would just be bickering amongst each other, trying to just like, oh, well, we, we need to go to China and everything and defeat, you know, uh, check a joke once for all. And the Navy's like, well, no, we need to go ahead and go after the American carriers. And they, they would just go back and forth and back and forth constantly. And just like there was a lot of infighting and backstabbing. And it's just something that really wasn't um was wasn't changed really and uh, like even, even the very end of the war these fights are still happening you know so wow yeah it's 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 pretty bad <laughs> and then so uh the chief operations division of the army section a guy named general shinichi tanaka uh basically called bullshit on this whole midway theory pointing out that macarthur had moved his headquarters to brisbane australia a number of transports the japanese had seen pointed to at least division being present there so like they're kind of you know, uh, they're, they're trying to, you know, like kind of the Navy is kind of trying to downplay the Americans, like, you know, landing in Fort Guadalcanal saying like, oh, it's only reconnaissance and force guys, you know, like, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. And he's like, well, MacArthur moved his headquarters to, you know, Brisbane, which is, you know, most closer to Guadalcanal. And then also, you know, the, uh, the number of trans, you know, he pointed number of transports as well. So, you know, it's like, uh, I, I don't really think that's the case, guys. But um, yeah, hey, guys, so- the crazy guy who said he'd be back. He's coming back. <laughs> he was he wasn't bullshitting there. I mean, he's he's not he's, in the Philippines yet. He'll come there later. But I like think he's, he's lying, guys. <laughs> guys, I don't think he wants to come back, guys. I think that was just a bluff. All right, but like, so this led the Japanese to decide that a larger attack needed to be mounted on Guadalcanal. So on August 11th and 12th, Japanese naval intelligence confirmed the lack of Allied naval presence in the area. Uh, moreover, the Japanese flew a plane about 10,000 feet over Henderson Field to spy on the American emplacements. Now, when they saw almost no Marines in the airfield, they concluded the American strength lay at about seven to 8,000 men, when in reality, the Americans had about 10,000 troops there. So what they basically did was they flew an airplane over Henderson Field at 10,000 feet, which, mind you, like if you're on the airfield and you see a Japanese plane flying overhead, you're immediately running to the slit trenches because you think you're going to get bombed. So you're not going to see anybody like waiting, just like looking up on the airfield, you know? So, like your numbers are going to be completely distorted there. Like you're not going to see an accurate measurement of like the actual numbers there. So I just think it's funny. They're just like, Oh yeah, there's, there's nobody there. You know, like, Oh, they didn't run out, wait for wait to get bombed. So that means there's nobody there. Right. Like Lieutenant go fly your plane over the Island. And I want you to count as many Americans as you can. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty much what happened. Just like, please just like, all right, 20. All right, 20. That means there's only 20 Americans there. All right, good job. Great. Can we do one more pass? I, th- I think there might be a few more. No, we, only one is fine. We're good. There's about yeah, we're 20. Good. We're good. All right. Yeah. You know, like, I, I, want, I want to drink some more sake. Come on, man. Let's get, let's get yeah. back. Let's get back to the we base. go land. <laughs> right. So what ended up happening was the Japanese plan was for the 900-man Ishiki detachment, uh, uh, commanded by, of course, a man named Ishiki, uh, to land at Taivu Point, 22 miles east of the airfield, while 250 special uh, naval landing force troops would act as a diversion, landing on the west side of the American perimeter at Kukumbona. And then, so you might also ask, like, you know, you know, we talked about, you know, the Japanese estimated there's about seven to 8,000 men on the island, so why are they only sending 900 guys? Well, I think a lot of it just comes down to the fact that at this point, the Japanese really un- underestimated the kind of the fighting spirit and kind of the the staying power of the Marines. I mean, you know, this is like, you know, in August 1942, the war, of course, started in December 1941. So at this point, the Japanese had just been running roughshod over, you know, pretty much all of the different, you know, the Americans and the European powers, you know, the Dutch, the British, you know, whoever. And, you know, had largely faced, you know, not all that much resistance and have been very victorious. So to say that they had, you know, overconfidence is definitely, I think, an an under-exaggeration in this battle. And then, so, on August 19th, uh, Ishiki's detachment landed at Taivu and marched nine miles to Tetier, slipping in the jungle to avoid detection. So, and previously, I should also mention, on August 17th, the Americans did manage to intercept Japanese communications, and they knew they were coming, but they just didn't know exactly when or where. So... You know, there's a, there's some a few issues there, of course, and then as we're gonna say, 
So Captain, a guy named Captain Charles Brush learned from a Catholic priest that was living on the island, along with Martin Clemens, who we mentioned was, he was the leader of the Coast Watchers there on Guadalcanal. And uh, he learned from them that there was maybe a Japanese force coming in along the road, or I'm sorry, along the coast. And he sent out a 60-man patrol into the jungle, and they ran to some natives who told him about a Japanese attachment coming their way. So now Brush launched an attack, managing to kill all but five of the 34-man force. They also discovered the Japanese plans for attacking the American positions along Alligator Creek and went back to the perimeter to warn the others. So this is kind of the first little kind of little scouting engagement. You have kind of a small little skirmish here where a few guys get killed. So Yes, a small skirmish to set the scene before a, a larger battle. Absolutely. Um, what is it and with then, like so, small things Fargo? like this where it's it, it feels like there are so many moments in history where it's like small scouting platoon A gets wiped out. And they had a copy of every plan of attack for <laughs> the next afternoon. Like, you see it in the American Civil War. You see it, like, nine different times in the European theater of World War II. This just keeps happening. Yeah, like, maybe don't give small numbers of men, like, all of your battle plans. So then they can get attacked by larger groups of men and then wiped out. And then suddenly the the other, your enemy has all your battle plans. Like, that seems like a bad idea, you know, just, just from a, a tactical, you know, perspective. Exactly. Johnson, I want you to grab six of your best men. Grab your rifles, grab your, your scouting gear, and go, like, tiptoe along enemy lines. Report their positions back to HQ, everything you can. We want all of their information. Also, here's our entire War Games book. It has every <laughs> single play that we have, and that we will run every operation that could potentially, hypothetically exist. But, yeah, sir, just, sir just... Why, do I, why do I need this? Uh, bullet protection. Here you go. <laughs> pretty much just 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 here here take take the enigma code with you you just just tote that thing around you know like <laughs> and then so uh so not knowing the strength of the japanese force coming their way vandegrift decided to await the rival and dig in so you know, the japanese waited until dark to launch their attack uh ishiki uh, ishiki launched his main assault across the sandbar that separated alligator creek from the ocean attempting to flank the marine force there and the Marines immediately opened up with rifle and machine gun fire as the Japanese charged their positions with uh, fixed bayonets along with swords and mortar fire in support. So basically, the Japanese are coming in along the coast. The Marines kind of have their positions kind of, you know, going, you know, like from the beach, kind of like a little bit inland. And the Japanese are literally trying to like go kind of almost like through the surf, you know, to like actually a or to try and like outflank them. And so the Marines just start opening up on them. So Robert Leckie writes some a little bit about this. So he wrote a quote. Everyone was firing, every weapon was a sounding voice, but this is no orchestration, no terribly beautiful symphony of death, as decadent rear echelon observers write. Here was uh, cacophony, here was dissonance, here was wilderness, here was the absence of rhythm, the loss of limit. For everyone fires what, when, and where he chooses. Here was booming, shrieking, wailing, hissing, crashing, shaking, gibberish noise. Here was hell. So, pretty gnarly stuff going on there, to say the least. So... And particularly, uh, particularly deadly uh, were the Marines. So the Marines actually had these 37mm anti-tank guns, but they also had canister shot for them as well, which basically transformed these anti-tank guns into giant shotguns. And then yeah, so they're they, firing they, those they the charging Japanese. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty gnarly stuff. And then so these just start ripping in the Japanese as they're coming up. So uh, there's a lot of uh, elements of individual heroism in this battle as well. I just want that to go ahead and just kind of name a few. So there's one Native American uh, machine gunner named John Rivers was shot in the face and killed, but continued to fire another 200 rounds as his figure as his finger was actually stuck on the trigger. And then when he was killed, another gunner took over for him uh, until he was wounded in the arm. And then another gun- gunner took over for that guy until he was blinded by a grenade. And then he didn't continue to fight on with a pistol while he was blinded. <laughs> So, wow. Yep. Yeah. So you have one guy gets his finger stuck in the trigger after he's already dead, continues firing the machine gun, and then eventually he like gets off, and then like two other men take his place uh, of the course of the battle. And so now at this time, one group of Japanese soldiers swam across a creek and set up a machine gun and an abandoned amphibious tractor. And then uh, using the machine gun, they did manage to silence a single 37 millimeter gun, eventually firing on the bar. But uh, despite all their efforts and charges, however, the Japanese simply could not break through. So this is something that we're going to see kind of over and over again throughout Guadalcanal is the Japanese have this, you know, ex- 
extreme confidence and kind of like the the ferocity and kind of like the, the fighting spirit of the Japanese soldier. And so they'll continually just throw waves and waves of their soldiers against, you know, in, you know entrenched Marines who are armed with, you know, machine guns and mortars and those nasty 37 millimeter anti-tank guns, you know, submachine guns, rifles, etc. And they just get torn up. It was kind of something where the Japanese, you know, never really quite you know, estimated the firepower of the Marines, you know, in, in really any of these battles, and they'll continually un- underestimate that that firepower, so. Forgive me if, if I'm wrong. They call this island, or at least this campaign, the Meat Grinder, don't they? Uh, I haven't heard of this particular battle referred to that. Um, now, that may that might be applied to a later battle, perhaps, but this, I mean, this I, battle I is relatively I'm short. Of, yeah, it only lasts about, like, a day or two. What's up? Yeah. I think I'm thinking of Iwo Jima. Yeah, you, yeah, that that may be Iwo. Yeah. Now there is actually. It's funny that you, you mentioned Meat Grinder there because we're actually kind of getting to, uh, we'll, we'll see here in a second. So, um, so by daybreak though, the attack had been stopped dead in its tracks, and Vinegar launched a counterattack with tank supports in a coconut grove. So the Japanese, uh, you know, the uh, the Marines are pretty much stopped the Japanese advance, and then Vinegar launches a counterattack with with uh, some of the light tanks that they managed to have at this point. So the Japanese had no anti-tank guns, so they tried using grenades and in magnetic anti-tank mines instead, which are basically like, you know, I mean, it's like it's just literally a mine with this giant magnet on it that they would just throw, you know, next to a tank. So, which like, you know, means in both of those instances we're using grenades or those, you could get really fucking close to a tank. So, like, 90% of the time that's not working out well for, for you. So, um... Now, Venegov actually remarked that the rear of the tanks looked like uh, meat grinders as they re- returned from the coconut grove. So, see what I did well, there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> you you can see the future, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> and then so, eventually, though, completely encircled, uh, Ishiki ended up burning the regimental collars and killed himself in Japanese fashion. And the remaining soldiers uh, tried to escape via the sea. And they were shot as they tried to swim away for the most part. So that's pretty much the, the end of the battle. It only lasts about the course of like a day, more or less. And then uh, so the impact was that almost 800 Japanese soldiers were killed at the Battle of Alligator Creek with only one Japanese soldier surrendering. So uh, Marine losses were about 44 killed and 71 wounded. Now, although it was small in terms of men involved, there'll be much bigger battles in Guadalcanal as you know, time goes on. It was kind of important because it shared the myth of Japanese invincibility. We talked about earlier how they had just been running roughshod over the Allies for the last eight months. And suddenly they just kind of run into an immovable object in this instance. And they just they cannot overcome it. And, you know, I think it does shake their confidence, I think, later on down the line. And then uh, it also, though, set the standards for the conduct of the war in the Pacific as the Marine. So, like... You know, at this point, you know, this is the first large, you know, engagement of the Japanese or of the Marines against the Japanese. The Marines haven't really witnessed a lot of the ferocity and the brutality of the Japanese soldiers. So just one example of this is that after the battle, the Marines would come upon wounded Japanese soldiers and they would, you know, try and help them out and everything, try and get them to, you know, field hospitals. And then only to realize the Japanese had grenades hidden on their person and then they would just blow themselves up along with the Marines. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's. You, I mean, you can't say they weren't dedicated. And now, even Vandegrift actually was shocked by the conduct of the Japanese. And keep in mind, Vandegrift, he's a veteran. He's fought, you know, in like, you know, Honduras and uh, other South Central American countries prior to the war. So this isn't like, this isn't just a green, you know, general. So uh, he wrote to General Holcomb a few days later about the incident quotes, General, I have never heard or read of this type of fighting. These people refuse to surrender. The wounded wait until men come up to examine them and blow themselves uh, and other fellows to pieces with hand grenades. Yeah. So from now on, no quarter would be asked or given from either the Japanese or the Marines. It was going to be a fight to the death. Yeah, I was about Um, to say, like, why are the Marines on the beaches, like, shooting at Japanese soldiers who are are trying to swim away out into the ocean where they, they can't do anything? Well, because those Japanese soldiers could come back and have hand grenades in their belts. Yeah, uh, or, or, or even that they just, they just witnessed a wounded Japanese soldier, you know, blow up one of their buddies who was trying to help him, and then suddenly you're just filled with rage and just start, you know, yeah. trying that, to that's get all of them. change a man. That's, that's What's gonna, up? That, that absolutely changes a person's psyche, where you, you think you're doing a good thing, like, I'm going to help this person, he's dying, let's see if we can, you know, save him, you know, we'll, we'll do a good thing in the midst of this battlefield. And then that guy blows up John from Kentucky... 
you are yeah. never going to trust like another soul on that island who is not wearing a U.S. pack on their. Oh, own. absolutely. And if you look, uh, if you listen, if uh, if you're if you're a member of the Patreon, which I'm going to you know, do another plug here, but I went ahead and the first episode I uploaded on Patreon was about the practice of uh, U.S. soldiers taking Japanese skulls as trophies in World War II. And there's actually a bit where it talks about how there was a Marine, or there was, it was a group of Marines that just landed on Guadalcanal, um, you know, after, you know, there had been a few months of hard fighting. And they came across a, a young Marine who could have been more like 19 years old. And he had been there on the island since the very beginning. He was, he was a veteran, a seasoned veteran. And then as these young Marines, these newbies are offloading on their ships, they were noticing him like swinging something like by a rope. And it was a skull. So he had taken a Japanese skull, this young Marine, and was just swinging it like around above his head, you know, just like, you know, like it was like a jump rope or something, you know, and like, but this is the kind of conduct that kind of allows people to do this, right? Like you, you witness your buddies get blown up by a wounded soldier and, you know, something changes in you and you're, you're suddenly, you're very willing to like, you know, take, you know, someone's skull as, as a trophy, you know, not, I'm not going to say whether it's justified or not, but, or you can, even cases is also instances of where people would take like Japanese ears and like wear the ears as necklaces and everything. So yeah, it's, it's, wow. it's a brutal, brutal campaign. So you, you now go out on the Japanese side, uh, what the Japanese learned from this is that Admiral uh, Tanaka commented the battle should have taught the Japanese uh, that quote, the bamboo spear tactics and invincible uh, Japanese spirit would not be enough to overcome superior allied firepower so this however was not to be so he's actually comes out with the right lesson from this he's like hey guys we can't just throw waves of men at these marines in these entrenched positions and just expect it to succeed but the rest of the japanese commanders wouldn't really listen to him so after this battle there was a kind of a bit of an interlude in the combat uh, shortly thereafter, the Battle of Eastern Solomons occurred, in which the, uh, I should say, a common interlude for land, there was still some stuff going on at sea, which I'm about to talk about. So uh, so the Battle of Eastern Solomons occurred, in which the U.S. Navy managed to sink a Japanese light carrier and down about 75 planes on the ground. However, the war would stagnate for the next few weeks as the Marines and the Japanese failed to get a decisive advantage over one another. So they kind of just go kind of tit for tat back and forth. Uh, the Japanese were also at this point attempting to squash the growing uh they called it the Cactus Air Force uh, at Henderson Field to a little effect. So the, they, this is what they refer to as the American Air Force on Henderson Field was a Cactus Air Force. Uh, and then August 31st, the Japanese did manage to strike a pretty significant blow when they hit the aircraft carrier of the Saratoga with a torpedo. Now, they didn't actually sink the Saratoga, but the ship had to return to the West Coast for repairs or removing her for combat operations. So this is interesting to me because um, I once, when I was younger... Uh, well, you remember IB, you know, in high school, I, I did yeah. my uh, my 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 extended essay was what they called it on the uh, U.S. submarine campaign in World War Two, and what differentiated the the U.S. submarines from the Japanese submarines. So the U.S. almost exclusively focused on merchant shipping, whereas the Japanese actually were willing to go after much bigger targets like aircraft carriers with their submarines. And though a lot of people kind of consider this Ted to kind of like foolhardy, you know, because it's like, oh, what's the submarine going to do against an aircraft carrier? You, and uh, I mean, that, that is kind of how you get a lot of submariners killed because, you know, aircraft carriers don't travel alone. They have destroyers and cruisers that as soon as, you know, a torpedo is spotted, they just pounce on that submarine. But at the same time, though, like you'll notice, you know, during this battle, and this is not the last time this happens either in the campaign, that there'll be a Japanese submarine that will manage to get a hit on a pretty significant target, like an aircraft carrier. And then it might not sink it, but suddenly the aircraft carrier is removed from the picture for months. And that can have a massive impact on a campaign just to lose something as important as aircraft carrier. Yeah. And and on that point as well, like there's a reason both sides were targeting what they were targeting. On one hand, the Americans know that, yes, the Japanese Navy is powerful, but we can't directly out like outright attack them with our submarines. But if we whittled them down in surface engagements and let the submarines pick off their vital resources and their shipping lines, then they can't make more ships. They yeah, can't build yeah. 12 Yamatos or 24 like Generation 9 class aircraft carriers or whatever they were on. Yeah, and like in battleships like the Yamato, well, that might be impressive. I mean, they're no good if you can't get any oil for them or any gas for them. Exactly. So I, as I understand it, you know, there was a lot of times as well, I, I'm reading about the Yamato, where there are times where, like, they wanted to get it out to ocean, but they simply couldn't because they didn't have enough fuel, you know? So, the yeah. you know, whittling down the, the logistical capacities of enemy, I mean, that shit matters, you know? 
Exactly. And, then, and um, on the other hand, for the for the Japanese, their whole uh, they're on the defense. They need to remove American attacking pieces off the board, however they can. And like you said, uh, even if say you've knocked out an aircraft carrier, but you haven't sunk it, that aircraft carrier is gone for for months off the battlefield. That is depriving the enemy of a a vital piece of weaponry in their arsenal, and that's gonna handicap them in a way that either you can gain the advantage in that time or you can at least start to regroup on your own start to you know let your forces catch a break and and reconvene absolutely most definitely so you know the like the japanese are trying to basically kind of strangle the marines here on guadalcanal because you know right now their navy at this point is superior to the u.s navy for the most part and then so they're kind of trying to keep the U.S. from resupplying their own soldiers and hoping that they can go ahead and start landing more soldiers. So at this point, they start to uh, f- start ferrying more troops to Guadalcanal every day through what became known as the Tokyo Express. So these are kind of like fast-moving transport ships that are just dropping off guys, kind of piecemeal, trying to build up the Japanese forces so that they can eventually... The goal, of course, here is to eventually retake Henderson Field, but it's going to take a little bit before you can build up the amount of forces able to do that. Uh, so now the Marines at this point continue to largely be undersupplied and unreinforced. So they're, they're still, for the most part, on their own thing. The Navy is still trying to just keep the Japanese, the U.S. Navy is trying to keep the Japanese Navy at bay. They don't really have time to try to, you know, land soldiers right now at this point. So now this brings us to another battle, the Battle of Edson's Ridge. So this would be the next major land battle of the Guadalcanal campaign. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to September 5th. So at this point, the Japanese had around 6,200 men on Guadalcanal. Uh, the Japanese 17th Army offered uh, Kawaguchi, uh, that's his name, of course, uh, the Japanese Army command of the island, another division to buttress his strength, and Kawaguchi declined. He thought that there was only actually 2,000 Marines and 15 planes on this island based on erroneous intelligence reports, which <laughs> strikes me as odd because I'm like, I thought the Japanese thought that there were about 6,000 guys here. Now suddenly Kawaguchi's like, oh, there's only 2,000 men here, only 15 planes. Like, what? You know, we we threw all those guys against their lines, and like we we lost so many men in that battle. We had to have you know knocked out at least a proportional or even greater amount because I mean, otherwise we'd have lost nine hundred Japanese lives for for nothing, right? 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 <laughs> that can't be the case. Please, please, tell me a good person. <laughs> and then so uh, what Kawaguchi was right about was that the Marines did depend on Hanson Field for their survival. So. They could capture it, then the Marines would have virtually no means of resupply. And he also did know that Vandegrift was stretched very thin along the perimeter of the airfield. So he did have a strong possibility of success if he brought just enough force to bear along a single point of the line. So this is kind of, you know, going back to, you know, you know like uh, art of war tactics, you know, attack where your enemy is weakest. So if you can punch a hole in the right point, then you can go ahead and get the airfield and then the get behind the Marine lines and then they're fucked. So moreover, his troops were also very fresh while the Marines course were undersupplied and starving at this point so his attack plan was for the main body to storm down from uh the little from the um excuse me village of tetera and attack the airfield from the south while another main body attacked from the southeast and yet another would annihilate the american positions in the north along alligator creek an artillery unit was also supposed to fire on the marine positions from the east while the ign bombarded imperial japanese navy uh ign stands for bombarded their positions from september 9th to the 10th so this is something also you'll see a lot with the Japanese that they really like to go very complex with a lot of their plans. They like, they like a lot of moving parts. When some sometimes there'll be like plans that start really simple and then suddenly they become more complex and then they kind of fall apart. So uh, now Kaliguchi's plan though immediately started running into problems. So native scouts at this point on Guadalcanal, who largely were you know allied with the Americans, detected their presence from the east, and some Marine raiders and parachutists under Colonel Edson launched a raid on uh, Kawaguchi's rear, scattering the rear guard and capturing four artillery pieces and numerous accounts of, or amounts of foodstuffs. Now, thanks to Edson's raid, the Marines did know a sizable force of Japanese troops were on the way. So they know the Japanese are coming, although, again, they're not really sure exactly where or when. So uh, pilots from Henderson Field also managed to delay enough the transports to the point where a significant number would not arrive in time for the assault as well. Uh, despite this good news, though, the singles were still not going very well for the Marines. On September 11th, Admiral Gormley uh, and Admiral Turner and Vandegrift met together on Guadalcanal and discussed the situation. So Gormley 
uh, at this point was extremely pessimistic about the whole thing, just bluntly stating that his naval forces were insufficient and that he can no longer support the Marines on Guadalcanal, which is not what you want to hear if you're Vandegrift. <laughs> like, no, that's, this that's guy is just outright telling you, oh, yeah, we, we probably can't support you guys. He's like, God fucking damn it. Like, I, I feel so sorry for Vandegrift for much of this battle because he's having to just kind of you know, deal with the Japanese and also the fact that the Navy can't supply him. And it's just a really tough spot to be in. And then, um, uh, jungle Admiral... where he can get malaria <laughs> or trampled by cows. <laughs> <laughs> like, man, just, he's, he's just like, I want to, I wish I could have been fucking, he's like, man, a few years ago I was in fucking like, you know, Panama, you know, like drinking rum by the beach and everything. Like I'm doing this shit. Like, <clears throat> so, Admiral Turner proposed setting the 7th Marines of Guadalcanal, but his plan for them was stupid, uh, pretty much. He wanted to spread kind of like, his plan was he wanted to spread small numbers of them around the island at every potential landing site in order to better expose, or, I'm sorry, oppose the Tokyo Express. Now, this is stupid because the Japanese uh, already had a sizable force in the island could easily wipe out any small isolated pockets of Marines piecemeal. So he just kind of wants to just land little bits of guys just all around the island, anywhere the Japanese could think of possible landing. But if you don't concentrate your forces, then all those guys can very easily just get wiped out if a larger force comes their way. So this is just stupid, and <laughs> it just it, it doesn't make any sense. And then so... Vandegrift, meanwhile, argued that the 7th Marines would come ashore at Lunga Point instead, but uh, they ended up not really coming to a decision by the end of the evening. So, uh, actually, I think I'm going to go grab some water. I'll just be right back. All right. Welcome back. All right. So, moving on. So, on the night of the 12th, so on September 12th, the force of, uh, force of Japanese 25 uh, Betty twin-engine bombers and 15-0 fighter planes flew over Henderson Field and dropped their payload. So they managed to destroy the main radio station along with four Dauntless SVD dive bombers. Uh, they were opposed by about 32 American Wildcat fighter aircrafts. Uh, the Americans managed to shoot down five of the bombers at one and one zero at the cost of only one pilot killed and one wounded. So uh, though the Japanese, though, did manage to capture an American pilot at this point. So he, they managed to interrogate him. And he divulged the Americans were strongest east along the coast and weakest south of the airfield exactly where Kawaguchi was headed. Moreover, he said that the Kawaguchi's advance through the jungle had not yet been detected. So this is actually pretty good news for the Japanese. He's basically saying that they're weakest where the Japanese, the Americans are weakest where the Japanese plan to attack and that they don't know that they're coming, which isn't really, I mean, like, they're, they're isn't really true. I mean, the Japanese or the Americans, like we earlier discussed, the Americans knew the Japanese were coming. They just didn't know where or when exactly. So now Admiral Turner was with the Marines the night of the 12th. He stated, quote, things are going to get worse before they get better. <laughs> oh, how prophetic you will be, Admiral Turner. So he's like a very smart man. <laughs> yes. Uh, that very night, Edson's polygon force of about 840 Marine Raiders and parachute troops were stretched along a ridgeline that ran from the lagoon to Lunga Points, uh, so along the coast. Now, they set up barbed wire and started digging foxholes. The jungle was so thick, though, along the ridgeline that it was kind of less of a continuous line than more of a series of strong points. They kind of have set up, you know, little, you know, machine gun emplacements and barbed wire and foxholes and stuff, kind of wherever they can, wherever the jungle basically permits them to, uh, to set these up along the ridge. So, Edson suspected that a Japanese force would attack his front, so he uh, placed the majority of his command there and brought his officers together to discuss the impending engagement. So, uh, just as they were breaking up for the evening at 9.30pm, the Marines heard the sound of Japanese float plane and a flare shot headed up the sky. So, this is a good signal that the Japanese are starting to attack. So, at the very same time, Japanese destroyers at the coast began to shell their position. And from the Marine point of view, the Japanese were attacking along the east bank of the lagoon where the Marines were vulnerable. Uh, from the Japanese perspective, however, things were a bit different. So Kawaguchi originally planned to start the attack at 9, but several of his brigades were late to the assembly area. Uh, this led to about 2,500 Japanese soldiers attacking later than they should have. Moreover, once the attack began, those soldiers almost immediately got swallowed by the jungle. Uh, they missed the ridge entirely and instead filtered to low, kind of swampy part of the jungle between the ridge and Lunga. So command and control began to break down as more units became lost and disorganized. So this is what we talked about, how, like, 
they'll just be attacked where the Japanese units just get lost in the jungle and then they arrive late or sometimes they just don't participate in the battle at all. Like in this case, the, the jungle is kind of just an, an ally to the Marines in, in this battle. Yeah. It kind of really is incredible how like nobody is at home field advantage here. Like it should be, but like technically the Japanese since they were there first, but it's a thick jungle that they are in nowhere, like in no shape, like, like familiar with it all. No, they and really so, aren't. Yeah. So it, it's quite literally just two armies. Like it's kind of like age of empires, uh, where you have fog of war turned on. So it's just a completely black map, except for the areas where you currently have units. <laughs> Pretty uh, much. And, and it's just like they are, they're completely lost. They have no idea where they're going. They're like, okay, the enemies are somewhere on the other side of the island, and we got to get from point A to point B. Yeah, and, and pretty much. And remember, like we we talked about how the jet or the Marines never had an accurate map of Guadalcanal the Tech campaign. Now, just because the Marines don't doesn't mean the Japanese have a good map either. They don't have like they, their maps are shit too. So really, both sides are just not at home really at all. You got to figure, you know, a lot of these Japanese soldiers, although they may have been veterans of some jungle fighting on some islands, you know, on the Pacific. Uh, for the most part, these guys are probably from cities, you know, and so they're not used to fighting in these really dense, you know, like, you know, just jungle areas. So uh, by the time the order was destroyed among the Japanese, it was only about one hour and until daylight. So it was too late for a net attack. So kind of a lot of that was kind of wasted. And then just, just from being lost in jungle. So, Kawaguchi became increasingly frustrated by the environment. At one point, he was crossing a stream and got swept up to the strong, strong currents. He crawled out of the stream on the opposite bank and aired his frustration, stating in his after-action report, quote, Because of this devilish jungle, the brigade was scattered all over and completely beyond control. In my whole life, I had never felt so hopeless. Which is another thing you never want to hear a general say. <laughs> That's just everything has gone wrong with my day. I'm I'm in not a good mood. My clothes are wet. My friends are this river. here. <laughs> He's throwing a temper tantrum by a letter. Pretty much, yeah. It's like I, I just think the image though of just this Japanese general, you know, who just like goes into like he just gets washed up in this stream and is crawling out of the other side while like all of his men are surely are probably just watching, you know. Like uh, I would love just... a before and after picture of like before confident. He has information from a captured American pilot saying, yeah, that we're weak here and you're going right where we're weak. He's like the picture of success. And then after he's just like soggy, defeated, covered in like mud and other mosquito bites. Yeah. yeah, Mosquito bites and just other crap from the jungle. Uh, Just a, a beautiful picture. It's like, I remember the episode of South Park where they went to like the Amazon jungle and the very end, like they go on the school field trip, the teachers just like, they get like all like lost to the Amazon jungle, get fucked up by everything in the jungle. And yeah. the teachers just like, burn it down, burn it all down. Like, <laughs> get rid of it. Like, And so, uh, now that was the main body of the Japanese force. Uh, the wing units though. So we're talking, we're talking about all this. This is the main body. So the wing units didn't really fare so much better. Uh, they also lost, or they also spent most of the night largely scattered through the jungle and failed to make any decisive attacks. So basically, the first night is completely wasted for the whole Japanese force. So the Japanese ended up missing their opportunity for a decisive night attack on the twelfth. Meanwhile, the Marines took this opportunity to short more of their fences on the ridge and prepare themselves for the possibility of being overrun. So Vangriff announced that he intended to stay, quote, "come hell or high water," and face the possibility of taking the hills and acting as guerrillas. If the airfield was taken. So they really are preparing for the absolute doomsday scenario. Just like, hey guys, we might have to leave the airfield and there's no way for us to get resupplied. And then we might have to just hide out in the hills and fight like gorillas. So really, so the Marines aren't very much better in this situation either. So So this brings us to the day of the 13th. So the very next day, the Japanese launched their daily raid in the airfield. Though this one is different though, because the Japanese army had reoccupied Taivu Point, which Japanese Air Force uh, didn't know this, though, and started bombing their own people. So, yeah, great great, great job, Japanese Air Force, on there. And then uh, congratulations, you played yourself. And then uh, at one point after the raid, an American Wildcat took over, uh, or took after a Japanese Zero that managed to slip through the defenses of Henderson and down an American dive bomber. So the Zero did manage to get away uh, right after the Wildcat fired on it and nearly hit a formation of dive bombers coming in from the Saratoga. 
So, like, there's two kind of friendly fire instances coming right, like, after another. So the Japanese ended up bombing their own people at Taibu points, and then the Americans uh, ended up firing on a squadron of dive bombers coming up the, from the Saratoga. So I, I just think that's just funny. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> me- meanwhile, uh, Kawaguchi planned to launch the main attack at 10 p.m. on the 13th. So this is the new plan. Uh, Edson's Marines were stretched pretty thin uh, everywhere uh, <laughs> along the ridge. Uh, platoons were organized at about 100-yard intervals, with the only clear fields of fire being along the ridge itself. So everywhere else is thick jungle, so they don't really have good fields of fire. So around 6.30, the attack uh, began again along the ridge. At one point, the Marine platoon was completely surrounded, but they managed to fight their way out, which is just crazy. And then... um, Yeah, it's brutal hand-to-hand combat. Uh, The Japanese did manage to surge through a 200-year gap between two American companies, uh, this time, American 105mm howitzers opened up and began shelling the Japanese only 200 yards away from the Marine lines. Which, if you're firing like 105mm howitzers, that is f- fucking close. Like 200 yards yeah. away. There is no margin of error there. That is, you have to be pinpoint accurate, otherwise you're blowing up your allies. Yeah, you're, you're either hitting the Japanese or you're hitting your own guys. So it's pretty, pretty fucking tough. Uh, Edson estimated at this point that about 300 of his own men faced off against two Japanese battalions. So this would have been roughly 2,200 men. So about 300 of Edson's guys versus 2,200 Japanese soldiers. So, And then uh, around 10.30 p.m., the Japanese attacked along the eastern flank, first with the mortars and then screaming. Uh, and then So first they attacked with the mortars, and then they started uh, attacking with infantrymen, started attacking, uh, all shouting, Charge! Now, under this mounting pressure, the Marines under attack withdrew about 150 yards and hoped to mount a counterattack. So, at this point, the weight of the Japanese attack came down in Company B of the Raiders, and then Edson ordered them to withdraw top of the high knoll, a center of the ridge, in order to better organize the defense. So, the Marines are kind of starting to contract their perimeter a little bit to kind of just be a bit less uh, spread thin. And then, um, so it's you know pretty common if you have you know vastly inferior you know numerically inferior forces. So. Uh, as, the, as the Marines withdrew, some began to go much further than was ordered, even continuing to head to the airfield. So this threatened to undo the entire American defense. So some of the Marines withdraw too far and then end up threatening the entire plan. Uh, luckily, though, just as this was happening, the American artillery zeroed in on the Japanese advance, causing significant casualties and killing the Japanese commander of the assault, a guy named Major Kokusho. So this is something else you'll see in the Guadalcanal campaign, is that the American artillery really does not get its due, I think, in this battle. There'll be several more battles where the artillery just comes in and is, like, just shooting with pinpoint accuracy really, really close to the American lines. And, you know, largely, I think they they, they share a very uh, a very significant part into why a lot of these battles go the American way. The Japanese didn't really do uh, nearly as well with the artillery, oftentimes, because usually, in many cases, they were the ones advancing. So, you know, hauling a giant, you know... <laughs> artillery gone through the jungle is fucking difficult so sometimes they would just leave them behind or they would get stuck in the mud or broken down but uh yeah i just want to mention that a little bit about the american artillery i think it's interesting uh and then so the artillery fire caused the japanese to advance actually faster towards the marine line so the 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 japanese are trying to basically kind of hug the marine line to try and get as close to them as possible you know so that because they know the artillerymen are are you know are not going to you know want to risk of course blowing up their own guys we talked about earlier, so uh, so they managed to force the withdrawal of Company B of the Raiders of Edson's Raiders, but the withering Marine fire caused significant casualties, including two of their own platoon commanders and one company commander as well. So with nowhere left to go, Edson made his final stand. He arranged three hundred Marines into horseshoe formation on top of the ridge. Uh, Edson ordered Harry Turgeson um, to take companies B and C of the parachute troops and launch a counterattack. This managed to drive the Japanese uh, back some, but they still kept coming. Edson managed to, or continued to move the artillery closer and closer to his lines to keep them at bay. So the Japanese, it's like, you know, it's kind of almost a, a kind of a contest of like, you know, can the artillery take out, you know, enough Japanese so they don't just bust through the American lines at this point? Yeah. And so, so sorry, what? Oh, no, just agreeing. Yeah. And then so the uh, Japanese mortars as well started plumbing, pummeling the knoll and the Marines rolled grenades down the hill during each charge. So uh, of the Marines, machine gun crews were hit the heaviest, so their crews were frequently replaced. So these are going to be the guys the Japanese are targeting the most. Kind of like how 
they uh, the Japanese would later target uh, like flamethrower crewmen and everything because they're absolutely terrified of flamethrower and like who fucking wouldn't be like you getting burned to death, <laughs> but like so and then um so Essen was leading from the front. He was only ten yards behind the lines, so he was so close to all the fighting that bullets were literally piercing his collar and the waist of his clothes. So he's just got all of these holes. In his collar and along the waist from when bolts are just zipping right by him because he's just that close to the action. So, uh, at around 4 a.m., division headquarters started sitting in companies from the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines to reinforce the line. So, despite this, though, the Japanese 6th Company under Major Tamura did manage to break through the Marine lines and then they uh, overran Fighter 1 position at 5.30 a.m. So, they did capture two machine guns, but they were pushed back by uh, some of the combat engineers who managed to rally. And then they went ahead and seized the position back. So the Japanese take one position, but then, uh, you know, they're pushed back once more again. So as dawn came, three P-400 Air Cobra fighters flew down to the airfield and straight the Japanese positions. I made all the craters and burnt grass and debris. They spotted about 500 Japanese bodies on the ridge. So, and I should also mention, Air Cobra is an interesting fighter because... It, uh, it was actually a lot, a ton of them were shipped over to the Eastern Front during World War II because it was very successful against tanks, primarily because it had a massive, like, 37mm gun in, like, in the propeller hub. So, which, of course, normally is an anti-tank gun. So, I just picture these, like, just picture these American fighters coming down and just firing, like, tank-sized rounds on the Japanese and strafing them with machine gun fire. I mean, it must have been absolutely terrifying. A fighter plane no, no. with a machine gun is already terrifying, but if you put <laughs> a gun that shoots a, a bullet bigger than a man's head on it, yeah, I I don't know how a, how much scarier you can get. Yeah, it's it's pretty it, it's pretty insane. And then um, so during the assault, uh, the entire assault on thirteenth, Kabaguchi threw about seventeen thousand. I'm sorry, not seventeen thousand, seventeen hundred men against Edson's three hundred nearly annihilating them in the process. So had one more battalion been sent against the Marines, Kawaguchi may very well have broken through and seized the airfields. This is where we talk about like just the impact of like the terrain, right? Because we talked about some of these guys arrived late, some of them didn't participate at all. So if one more one so if one more of those battalions who had maybe been lost in the jungle had participated in this battle, it's very likely Kawaguchi may have broken through and seized the airfield. So uh so yeah, another battalion actually was available at this time, but due to mismanagement by its commander, it hardly took part in the battle. So yeah, this is what I was talking about earlier. So uh, when the commander of the 124th Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Watsunabe, explained why his battalion was largely absent from the battle, his explanation largely came down to getting lost in the jungle and then pinned down by artillery fire. So <laughs> uh, sorry, boss. I, I kind of got my guys lost in the, in the jungle. Um, yeah. Oh man, that really sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> We kind of got lost, and then the whole ground started exploding. So, <laughs> sorry. So we, so we thought it'd be a good idea to hang back. Yeah, which, I mean, un- understandable. And then, uh, so scattered sniper fire continued into daylight, but battle at the point, this point was largely over. So, of the 397 Marine Raiders and Parachutists uh, that landed on August 7th, so this is on the very first day of 